on this episode of The Kinked Wire. The reality is, and you know, catchy way to remember this is, if it needs a sign, it's bad design, right? You see a tea kettle and you immediately know how to use it. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, surweb.org slash kinkedwire. In this episode, as part of a new IRs and training series on biodesign, hosts Eleanor Lee and Siraj Sagu speak with Dr. Craig Kodorov on identifying problems to solve, how to recognize bad design, and more. Welcome everyone to the SIR RSF BDIC education series. My name is Eleanor Lee and I'm a second year medical student at the University of Tennessee. And my name is Siraj Sagu. I'm a fourth year medical student from St. George's University. We intend for the series to help participants of the biodesign competition to help to find problems related to IR, to propose solutions to solve those problems, and to allow participants to start the designing process. Today, we are honored to be joined by Dr. Grev Kodorov, who is currently a PGY4 integrated IR resident at Thomas Jefferson University. He has an MBA in healthcare management and extensive innovation and designing background. Can you talk a little bit about finding problems with an IR? First of all, thanks so much for having me here. It's an honor to be here, and you guys are rock stars. Yeah, finding problems within IR, um, problems are everywhere. So as medical students, you're perfectly positioned to find them because you're not used to the status quo yet. See, the problem is as you advance through your training, you're more and more likely to become accustomed to the problems and find workarounds for them. And once that happens, you're in too deep. You stop noticing the problems altogether and it becomes more challenging to innovate. So question the status quo always. Ask lots of questions. Uh, anytime you see a process that seems arduous or if you see an attending do something that you don't quite understand why they did that, be sure to ask. You know, sometimes it's just style points, but sometimes you'll find the answer is simply that's how we've always done it or that's policy here but i'm not really sure why and you'll get the same answers from ancillary staff too like the nurses and techs and you know transporters and facility staff you you ask one thoughtful question and you kind of like you realize that no one has a good answer to it those are really great starting points for innovation i noticed that recently the word user-friendly has been brought up a lot and people are starting to talk about human-centered design. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that can be incorporated into innovation within the IR space? Yeah, sure. So first we should kind of talk about the design thinking process altogether, which can really be broken down into six easy steps. So the first is empathize, right? That's building an understanding of who your end user is, who you're innovating for. Uh, that involves asking those particular that particular population, whether that's physicians, patients, or staff, asking them what's important to them and what matters to them in terms of finding a solution. The second is defining the problem that you're planning on innovating towards. This is usually phrased as a how might we question or an HMW question for short. So this is a key when you're starting the design thinking process. You have to ask yourself the question, how might we build a better wire, for example, or, or improve the catheter that's bothering, you know, our attendings for X and Y and Z reasons. The next step is to ideate. So this is a step where no idea is a bad idea, right? So everyone's opinions are welcome. There's a lot of yes and, and the only time you say no is if someone says that's not a good idea, you tell them no, we're not at that stage yet to decide that. 
After you ideate, then you move into the prototype stage. So this is where you really build some sort of minimally viable product or service to demonstrate your idea, both to show to your end users and make sure that that's actually what they think is right, and also to uh, be able to show to investors once you launch. The step after prototyping is to begin testing, right? This is like really getting your prototype in the hands of all of the end users and figuring out how to make it better, making sure that it's robust and it works in the real world, uh, which is a whole another set of obstacles altogether. And then after you've tested your prototype extensively, then you begin to implement. And that is, uh, you know, really the last step where you bring the product to, or service to market. The key to this whole process is that you go backwards between these steps just as often as you go forwards, if not more. Um, so it's extremely iterative. So once you've built a prototype, you find out what's wrong with it, you go back to the ideation stage and so on. In terms of human-centered design, the idea is really simple, right? So if you start with the step of empathy, you keep the end user in mind throughout the entire design cycle. So this means involving them. If you're innovating for physicians, but you're not including them in every step of the design thinking process, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. There's nothing worse than getting ready to launch your prototype and realizing you've been designing what you thought someone needed instead of what they actually needed. Uh, the same goes for if you're innovating for a patient-facing solution. Don't wait until you're done building it to ask a patient what they think. Yeah, I really like that idea of human-centered design. Can you elaborate a little bit more about, I guess, bad design? The easiest way to describe bad design is, well, A, we all know it when we see it, right? Like, you've definitely had the experience of interacting with a product or a service, whether that's like a buggy app on your phone or you know, a piece of technology that doesn't quite work the way you thought it was going to work. And you immediately know that's bad design. The way designers talk about this in the design thinking space is a really good example of bad design is what's called the Norman door. So a Norman door is the concept that despite being one of the oldest pieces of technology, there are still doors that you'll encounter throughout your life that you don't know whether you should be pushing or pulling or twisting a knob or opening correctly. And we've all had that experience where we, you know, accidentally push when we're supposed to pull um, or vice versa, or just like open the wrong side of, you know, like go push on one side of the door, but it's actually the other side of the door that opens. I'm thinking of two doors in my hospital that I still do this uh, with on a regular basis because they're identical doors in slightly different locations. And I use both to exit the building, but the handle's on opposite sides. So I always push on the wrong side. Uh, but anyway, that's the concept of a Norman door. And, you know, most of those doors will have like extensive signage around it, but people still get it wrong. So the reality is, and, you know, catchy way to remember this is if it needs a sign, it's bad design, right? You see a tea kettle and you immediately know how to use it. You can think of hundreds of other pieces of technology, you know, a ballpoint pen, um, AirPods, you pick it up and you intuitively can figure out how to use it. That's great design. That makes a lot of sense. And while we can really spot bad designs, maybe from a mile away, sometimes when we're the ones who are designing it, it can be really hard to see that ourselves. So would you mind talking a little bit about what are some of the common pitfalls one tend to make when they first start to make design of their own? Yeah. 
I mean, I think the biggest pitfall is assuming you know the answer, right? Um, assuming you know what the problem is before you've started because it's a problem for you. So unless you're building a product or a solution that you exclusively plan on using only yourself and you don't never plan on having anyone else use this, you don't know what the problem is until you've asked a hundred people or a thousand people. Um, so that's really important. And, you know, that can be the most tedious and arduous part of the process is really reaching out to, you know, cold calling people and saying, Hey, is this a problem to you too? Or am I getting this wrong? That I think is the biggest pitfall that I see in like the early design process. The other major pitfalls are sort of like not including the end user. So, you know, again, that's kind of the same thing. But, you know, if you've already polled people and you figured out the problem, assuming you got that right, if then you go off and start building and moving through the rest of these steps of prototyping, ideating, et cetera, and take it all the way to market without including those stakeholders, um, and I'm not talking about just the end user, or just the target end user, but also other health stakeholders or other people involved in the process of, uh, you know, manufacturing this product and facilities staff that's going to have to discard of, you know, waste that comes with your product. If you don't involve all of these stakeholders throughout the entire process, then you're going to end up with a product that won't land. You might be lucky and still be able to land, but more often than not, you will have missed something. And that's the cheapest part of this whole process is to just ask people what they think, right? It's free. So um, definitely don't skip that part and make sure you really got it right. And then the last thing I think that I see people do is not iterating or going backwards enough, like we talked about earlier. So if you're just moving forward and you think that you've, you know, gotten everything right, and then you hit a prototype and you get like, you know, 50-50 feedback on it, some people say they really like it, some people say they don't, that's not enough to go forward, right? Everyone needs to love your product. So really take that into consideration, go back to the drawing board and figure out what needs to be done again. Thank you. That was a really good answer. Do you have any insight on how to form an interdisciplinary team to build a prototype? The easiest way to do it is just to reach out and cold call people, right? So I, you'd be surprised who wants to help you make your or their or a patient's life better. Um, so just be earnest and treat every team member as an equal. You know, I've, I've reached out to, uh, students before who don't even have never set foot in a hospital and they were instrumental in helping me find things to, to work on because they just weren't used to the, to the setting and they just questioned everything. So don't assume that because you've been through all this training and you have medical knowledge that you, you have all the answers because the reality is that more often than not patients or designers or, you know, like I said earlier, facilities workers will often have the answer that you would have never thought of because to you, it's not a problem. And I think social media is a great way to sort of build your team. You know, LinkedIn, Twitter, there's a huge healthcare design community on Twitter that I've reached out to several times, just gotten free advice or free help from people. So um, keep it low cost. And I think that making sure that the design is human-centered is especially important in the field of healthcare because the stake can sometimes be high. However, if a product somehow made it all the way through the end uh, stage and get into the real world only to for people to realize that it is not really built for efficiency, then how can the designer retroactively change it to be user-friendly? Is this something that we should consider? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously that's, uh, you know, a travesty when it happens. In the back table episode I did, I speak about the, you know, design travesty of the EpiPen, which has been around for years and still holds a big market share. Sometimes you'll get away with bad design, and that's the reality of things. But, you know, if you're designing for a patient compliance and for patients to, you know, truly use your product and improve their lives, then you really have to sit down and think, how did I get here? Like, how did I build a product that's not user friendly? And uh, like I said earlier, you know, design thinking is iterative. So you always have to go backwards. And the easiest way to do that is to go back to your original how might we question and see if you really nailed it. Like, did I actually ask the right question? And am I even innovating the right solution? If the answer to that is yes, then, you know, think through the next stage. Like, did I ideate correctly? Did I include everyone in the process in the room for that brainstorm initially to, you know, really nail this product? If I didn't ask somebody, and that's part of the reason it's not user-friendly, like, let me reach out to them, let me get their advice. So I think that's really um, the main thing here. The other thing I just briefly wanted to mention is along the same vein, I think a lot of people make the mistake of assuming that their translational research or bench research will translate into a product that's a slam dunk in the free market. And the reality is you may have, you know, in your lab discovered, for instance, a way to make a wire spin twice as fast. But if IR attendings aren't mad about how fast their current wire spins, then, you know, congratulations, you've got a publication, but not a successful product. And it's doomed from the get go. So that's just something else to be kind of mindful of is, you know, making sure that you're not trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. So assume you went through like all of the steps that you're kind of talking about. How do you finally get people to kind of adapt to the new solution or device that you made? Field of Dreams is the movie, uh, the famous quote, if you build it, they will come. I think that applies to innovation, right? If you've built the right product, you're not going to have to sell it that hard. I mean, you're going to have to sell it, right? But you're not going to have to convince people that hard because it'll be obvious to everyone that your product is better. Whether or not you're building a new product that's going to be more expensive than the existing product that does the same thing. Or if you're building a cheaper version that's somehow better because it's cheaper, that you have to also take into consideration, right? Like make sure that you've figured out which part of the market you're going to sort of launch in and then build the product for that market, right? So if you're trying to build a low cost solution, finding, you know, an extremely expensive manufacturing facility to build this product in small batches is just never going to work, right? So just make sure your business plan and your strategy um, match once you get to that point. Well, I think it's incredible that we're able to learn so much from Dr. Kodorov in the brief time that we have with him. I think the main theme is to always ask and never assume as you complete your training in the field of IR. We want to thank him again for his time and wonderful advice. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you. That was Dr. Greg Kodorov sharing with hosts Eleanor Lee and Sabraj Sagu his advice on the practice and pitfalls of biodesign as an IR in training. Submissions for the next biodesign competition will be due January 15, 2024. Watch for more details in the CircConnect RFS community and see the episode notes for links to related resources. We thank our guests and hosts for their time and you for listening to The King Choir. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at kinkwire at serva.org.